Thanks so much for joining us here on the Rivers Church Podcast. We see a church full of passionate people who reach the unchurched with the gospel of Jesus. Our heart is to equip people to love, live, and lead in God's kingdom. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that it encourages you to be all that God has destined you to be. If you need anything, please feel free to reach out to us and check us out on our website at riverschurch.co. That's riverschurch.co. What a good song. Well, let's talk about that today, but before we do, let's pray. Would you join me right now, Lord? I pray that all of us would be people, continue to be people, maybe even today become people who earnestly seek you and long for you, just like David wrote in this psalm. Lord, may we be people who just long for more of you, who long for your presence in our life. Lord, I pray that our hunger and our thirst for you would grow, would increase. Would you stir it up again, I pray, today. In Jesus' name, Lord, and would you help this, the Phoenix Suns come, come finish this first round of the playoffs and move on into the second round. In Jesus' name, everybody say You can be seated. I forgot to pray that last week, and <laughs> Pastor Griffin's shirt reminded me. He, had a, he has a Phoenix Sun shirt on. <laughs> oh, you ready for uh, some more of what God is doing today? Yeah. You know, it's been pretty amazing to see what God has been doing in our community the last two months. There's something new. There's been a shift in the atmosphere. And if you've been around for a while, you can see it. You can sense it. God is on the move. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I want more. I want more. Today is kind of, in a, in a sense, be part two of last week, which last week, guys, man, there's just a hunger here like I hadn't seen in so long that just felt good. And uh, today is kind of a continuation of that, a part two of that, as we continue on in our series of Jesus Movement. I, I just want to read a few verses from the book of Acts. Last week, we talked about how Jesus said, go and make disciples, but wait, don't go and make disciples yet. I want you to receive the baptism of fire. Remember that? We talked about that. And so they did. They waited. They had a 10-day prayer meeting, and they were baptized with fire. The Holy Spirit came upon them, began to speak out in, in tongues, other languages. And then they began to make disciples and start the church. And so at the end of chapter 2, that happens in the beginning of chapter 2, the baptism of fire. At the end of chapter 2, it gives us an incredible description of the first days of these Jesus followers. And this is what they did. This is how they lived. Acts 2, verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, 
all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I love those words as it describes what the first days, the first months of the church was like. As these guys just were, were, were just on fire for Jesus. And you read through those words and you kind of get this sense like these guys were all in, weren't they? They were kind of all in on this Jesus thing. Like Jesus had, had changed their life and touched them in such a radical way. They were all in every day. They're doing stuff. They're eating with people, having good food, doing communion. They're praying together. They're worshiping. They're being generous. It says they were devoted to these things. Like they were really, really devoted to what the Lord was doing in their midst. And they had this awe of who he was and how he continued to save people and how he continued to heal people. And the Lord just kept adding to their number daily. And that's my prayer for us. Not just weekly, not even yearly, but daily the Lord would add to our number those who are following him. That's our prayer. That's what we want to see. This really is, guys, the first Jesus movement. Acts chapter 2. The very first Jesus movement. It's the original, the OG Jesus movement right there. And throughout the years, there's been lots of incredible, mighty moves of God that have changed people's lives, have changed cities and countries, have shifted culture. And last week we talked about the, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s and how crazy and incredible that was. I want to go back to the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century. And I want to talk about what a lot of people think may have been since Acts chapter 2, the greatest outpouring of the Spirit of God that has ever taken place on the earth. 1906, it's called the Azusa Street Revival. Have you heard of the Azusa Street Revival before? But over 120 years ago, there was this outpouring that took place in the downtown LA area. And it lasted for three years, and it changed thousands of people's lives. It had far-reaching impact across the globe. In fact, you could even say that you and I are here today because of what God did starting in 1906 in Azusa Street in downtown LA. This church exists because of the Azusa Street Revival. This is part of the remnant of what happened back in 1906. I don't know if you've heard stories from this, but it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, guys. It's incredible. So this guy named William Seymour, African-American, one-eyed preacher who's just full of the fire of God, he, he longed to see what took place in the book of Acts in the church again. He's like, I'm looking around at the church in our country, and it's not, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing the book of Acts. And he prayed. He longed for it. He got invited to pastor a church in L.A. His first Sunday there, he preaches on the Holy Spirit. And they're like, we don't like you. We don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit. And they kicked him out. So this other African-American family takes him into their home, and he's talking to them. And they begin a prayer meeting. They start doing this prayer and fast. After 10 days of prayer and fasting in this home, the power of God hits this home. People start flooding for this to this house for the prayer meeting. And uh, within a few days, people all over Los Angeles and that valley are coming to this house. It's called the Bonnie Bray House. It's where the Azusa Street Revival began. Amy and I have stood on the steps of the Bonnie Bray House. You can go there today and look at it and see it. They actually have tours. I've never done the tour yet. I'd love to do the tour because they do tours of this place. But this is where it began. But it outgrew the house. It was this cars and people were all over the neighborhood. They're like, you, got, you can't keep doing this here. So they found this abandoned church building 
And the church building, it was, it was called the Apostolic Faith Gospel Mission. So they started doing church services there. The power of God continued to show up and move in a mighty way. And it happened for three years. And they were having services every day, oftentimes three times a day as thousands of people kept coming. Sometimes these services would go all day and would go on for, for days, like the, uh, the Asbury revival that we talked about last week as well. The cool thing about this was it was multiracial. There was white people and black people and Asian people and Hispanic people. It was all different people coming together in unity, loving one another. I think that's one of the reasons God blessed this. It was the cultural unity, and it was all led by an African-American man named William Seymour, who, like I said, was a one-eyed man. He was the son of slaves, and he's the guy that led this. Now, keep in mind, this is early 1900s. This isn't like early 2000s. This isn't like Barack Obama is our president. This isn't even, like, this is decades before civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. This is beginning of the 20th century. And all these people are following this man, William Seymour, and God's doing incredible things. It said that people would come off the train at the train station, which was the train station was a half mile down the road from where the building was, where the church was. People would step off the train and they would fall out in the power of God. They would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They would instantly begin to speak out in tongues. And they said that it would happen all day long. The train people were like, there it goes again. It just happened. Some people said that they saw a bloodline around Azusa Street. And when people would cross that line, they would be instantaneously healed. And then people would just fall to their knees and surrender their life to Jesus as they got healed. Some people would fall out in the power of God out in the street, in Azusa Street. The police were frustrated because all these people are just laid out in the power of God and it was blocking traffic. And it happened constantly. The fire department showed up several times because they saw fire, literal fire on top of this building. And so the fire department rushed there and they came into the building and there was no fire. It happened several times. Talking crazy things that happened about 120 years ago. It said that one guy had a stump of an arm and William Seymour prayed for him and they literally saw his arm grow right before their very eyes till he had a full arm. Someone showed up and she had, her ear was all jacked up and half of it was gone and she was in excruciating pain. They prayed for her and her ear grew back and the pain went away just like that. Someone had this huge lump on the side of their face and they prayed and that lump just disappeared. I mean, they were seeing radical healings, crazy healings like this and salvation after salvation. I mean, you see things like that and you hear stories like Steve's story and you think to yourself, there has to be a God. Like, people, people get healed like that. The doctor's like, I don't know. We're like, we know. Like, God is real, and he's still in the healing business. And what they saw at Azusa Street is just mind-blowing, guys. It said that William Seymour's wife, she was baptized in the Holy Spirit in the Bonnie Bray house. And she went to the piano, and she started playing the piano. She had never, ever, she didn't know how to play the piano. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit gave her the ability to play the piano, which she played for the rest of her life. Like, I've never heard of stuff like that. That's so cool. Like, I want that. I, I listen to Pastor John Mark, and I'm just like, oh, that is so, I want to play like that. That'd be awesome. So I'm going to start praying for that. <laughs> Salvations, healings, 
and bab- like people were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit every day through the Azusa Street Revival. Within the first few months, they were sending out missionaries across the states so they could go lead other little pockets of revival. And before that first year even ended, they sent a group of people to Africa as missionaries to take the fire of God to Africa. The modern day missions movement that you hear about, we, we, we see, we experience, it started right here in Azusa Street. God is moving on continents across the globe because missionaries were sent from Azusa Street back in 1906, 07, and 08. We are still feeling the effects of what God did there. That first group that they sent off, the first group of missionaries from the Azusa Street Revival, it was about, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 people. There was like seven African Americans and three or four white people. That was the first group. They sent them to Africa to take the fire of God to Africa. We could go on and on for days talking about stories about Azusa Street Revival, but I share all that to to, to say this. Like it was another movement by the power of Jesus and his spirit at work in very clear and crazy ways. It was a Jesus movement. And I want to see Jesus move again in my day. It doesn't have to look exactly like that, although I wouldn't mind if the fire department showed up because they thought there was a fire here and like, nope, just the fire of God, come on in and get saved. I would love that. That'd be incredible, wouldn't it? Here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. The question is this, what if we normalize a passionate pursuit of Jesus? What if we normalize this? What if it was normal, not abnormal, to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything we have? That's what I want to see take place. That's what I pray for us so that we can experience all that he has for us and we can see him do great and mighty things. Last week, we talked about how God shows up where he's wanted. He shows up where he's wanted. So like I said, this is kind of a continuation of last week. You might wonder, like, why does God show up some places and then not other places? Well, it has to do with where he's wanted, because here's the key. The key to revival, the key to awakening, the key to renewal, which you can define and describe those in all different ways. I, you know, I don't care. I just want to see God move. That's what I want to see. But what's the key? What's the, you can call it the secret. What's the secret to seeing that take place? And the secret is very, very simple. It's this thing called Hunger. And I would say it's continual hunger. It's not I got hungry for a week, but just I just this continual, like, I just want more of God. Amen. I want to be closer to him. If there's more of him that I can have in my life, I want, I want it. I want to get as close to Jesus as I possibly can. It really comes down to this continual hunger. God will bypass every lukewarm Christian, and he will begin moving on the one that's crying out to him. God will bypass 100 good churches that have good doctrine and good teaching, and he'll begin to pour out his spirit on the one that's just calling out for him to move, that's desperate for him. Hey, guys, we could be so busy doing life that we miss out on all that Jesus has for us. I want to be among those that are crying out to God and saying, God, I want you more than anything else. What if we normalized a passionate pursuit of Jesus? 
What if that became normal for you and for other, not just like the super Christians or like they're in pastoral ministry or you have time to really seek God. I don't have time. What, like, what if it became normal for all of us? That's, that's my hope. That's my prayer. Let's normalize a passionate pursuit of Jesus. <laughs> Would it be weird if you, uh, you wanted to read God's word more than you wanted to watch your favorite TV show? Amen. Or you'd rather spend some time in just prayer and worship than go into a movie? These are things that I don't often hear much these days. Some of us would say, man, I want him, or in the past I've wanted him, but he didn't show up, and, and, and so I'm just kind of frustrated, I'm angry. Some of you say, like, I'm just, I'm worn out, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm going through stuff. I, 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 I get it. I think it's important for us to understand, though, that we are people of desire. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've experienced in life, you still have desires, longings in your life, and God has given that to you. Like, there's, that's how we're created to desire things. So our desires are taking us a direction in life. So just take an assessment for the desires because desires determine direction. Desires determine direction. So what direction are my desires taking me in life? My desires are shaping the future of my life. So what do I long for? What are my desires? And maybe if I don't have a desire for God, it's because I'm just in a place where I've been filling my life with lots of other stuff. There's this proverb that says, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. A satisfied soul, it loathes the honeycomb. It's interesting. What this is saying is when your soul is so full of all this stuff that you can put into it in life, and then God wants to come along. He wants to give you something good, something new. He wants a blessing, a, a, a refreshing. He wants to do something in your life. You're like, nah, thanks, God. I'm good. I, I, I'm full. That's what that is describing. And what's interesting is you and I actually can be full of good stuff, like not bad things, but we're just so full of so much in life that we've got no room for God. And so I'm not here to condemn this morning. I'm, I'm here to really maybe kind of prod a little bit to kind of, I, I guess, I heard someone call it once, I want to be a spiritual bartender giving you pretzels. So to kind of get you a little more hungry and thirsty for more of God. I want to I get you more thirsty. So I, I want you to just really assess, how am I doing with this? Because I believe God has more for you in your life. And a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. I don't want to loathe all the good stuff that God wants to give me. You know, you could liken it to this. You, you, you know how Thanksgiving meal is so good? Like, it's the best meal of the year, right? Anybody agree? Like, Thanksgiving is the greatest meal of the entire year. And I love Thanksgiving meal. I just love just eating all that food, and then you're just sitting there just like, ah. <laughs> Watching some football. You satisfied. Have you ever done that? And then you had to go to like the other side of the family's house. And so you go to their house and you show up and they're like, hey, we got all this food. You want some of this? This is really good. Your aunt made this, you know, and you're like, you're looking at it. You're like, I am so full. I don't want anything. Has that ever happened to you? 
Now, their food might even be better than the food you had at the first house. But because you're full, you don't want anything to do with it. You're like, ah, no more. I've had way too much stuffing already. Like, even if it is better. And we can do that to God. Like, we can fill ourselves with all this good stuff that we just kind of crowd out God and we don't have a longing or a hunger for him. So how do we get to that place where we just want God? We have a hunger for him. We've got to cultivate a spiritual hunger. And David's going to help us with this today as we look at Psalm 63. If you got your Bible, go there. Uh, if you got your phone, feel free to go there on, on a Bible app. Psalm 63. We want to cultivate spiritual hunger and desire. Today's kind of like an appetite assessment of our spiritual life. So let's look at Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. Oh God. Oh, sorry, that's, that's 61. 63. Oh God. Starts the same way. That's kind of fun. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and your glory. So David is the writer of this psalm here and he wrote a lot of the psalms. The psalms are just songs. They're poems to God. These are songs that they would sing. And when you think about these guys that would write these psalms, like David, like what comes to mind? Do you ever think about like, oh, David, like he's this mighty man of God. If you know anything about David, he's the guy that killed Goliath, you know, so he's like this mighty warrior, but he's also a mighty worshiper, which I really love about David. Like I think the greatest warriors are worshipers, by the way. We want to be both warriors and worshipers. And so that's who David is. And he has all these incredible psalms that we have made into new songs today. And so as he writes these, you ever think to yourself, what was, what was going through his mind or what was, what was he experiencing? Maybe you think of David, you know, because David was a king and he had his, had his palace, this place that he lived. You, you picture David in his palace garden on this little swinging chair, drinking his cappuccino. The attendants are just fanning him, keeping him cool. He's got his journal out and his pen, and the Holy Spirit's just downloading things to him, and he's just like in this spiritual creative zone. He's like, oh, God, you are my God, yes. I earnestly seek you, God. Yes, earnestly seek you. Do you ever picture that? Like, this is how David wrote these, or the psalmist writing these. It's always so important for us to understand the context of what was going on while they're writing these words, because sometimes we can assume wrongly. And you probably didn't assume that extreme like I just described, obviously. But go back to the beginning of the psalm again. Look at this. Right next to the number, there's a description, a psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. He's in the wilderness so scholars would say that this is during the time that he has lost his throne. He has lost the kingdom. Absalom has taken over the kingship. And now David is out in the middle of the wilderness alone. So Absalom, who happens to be David's own son, backstabs his father, gathers a, a whole group of people to be his supporters, 
we don't need David. David, he's a horrible king. And he, they, they overthrow the throne, kick David out. So David literally has to flee for his life. He's running for his life. And he's out in the middle of the wilderness. He's lost everything at this point. He's lost his, his throne. He's no longer the king. He has lost his position, his power. He's lost all of his popularity. People are probably like judging like David weak. Look at him just on the run. He's lost all of his possessions. He's got nothing. He's probably thinking, I'm, I may never even be the king ever again for my life. He's out in the middle of the wilderness, and he writes these words, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. I long for you, God. Amen. And I think that's important for us to understand because Many of us, we can find ourselves thinking things like this. I'd be more passionate for God if my life got better. Or if my life was a little bit easier. Or when we get to this next season, you know, we get through this, then I'll really get passionate. Then I'll really start serving God. I'll get involved. I'll do this. And it's easy for us to, find, to really think these things, right? Where we think, oh, when, when things are easier, then I'll really get serious. Then I'll really get passionate. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. The truth is that we're more likely to be less passionate when life gets easier. Now, we might be thankful for what we were brought through. We might enjoy some of our days more, but we'd very likely be less passionate Something about comfort that just breeds complacency. Here David finds himself in a really, really hard, one of the hardest seasons of his life, and he's just crying out to God. He's like, God, I just want you more than anything else. I long for you. I seek you, God. You are my God. You know what they say? There's a saying that says the gap is the gift. We find ourselves in this place where we want to be there, but we're here. And I don't like it here. It's hard. It's discouraging. It's painful because I just want to be there. And there's this big gap. But oftentimes that gap is a gift that God has given you to draw you closer to him, to do a deep, profound work in your life, to build some character, to build some strength, to build some resolve, to build some grit deep inside of your soul, and to really stir up some passion and hunger. That gap can be a gift for you. You know, the most formative times in our life, it's the hard seasons, isn't it? Yeah. It's the painful seasons. Isn't it amazing how pain just tends to form us, shape us? You know, those easy days, they feel good, right? Yeah. feels good to have those easy days. You lay your head down on the pillow like, God, you are awesome. Today was awesome. Everything is awesome. You feel that, right? And... Then there's those tough days like, oh, Lord, God, where were you today? God, where are you right now? And you're like, oh, you know, we don't like those. God, I need you. I really believe that God, he, God's a loving God. And in a loving way, he puts you and I in a position to grow. He allows us to experience these things to grow. Sometimes it's life. Sometimes it's our fault, whatever the reason. He allows them to help us grow. Anyone who is loving will put you in a position for your love to grow uh, greater, not just dull. 
God doesn't want to dull your love. He wants to grow your love. He wants to grow your hunger and your passion. And so he allows this, these things to take place. You know, you read through the Bible and the majority of the people, as you read through all these crazy stories in here, they were formed through hardship, through pain, through struggles, and God used them in the midst of all that they went through. Hunger is born from pain and dissatisfaction and even anger and all the frustrations. Some of us were praying, God, just fix my situation, fix my situation. I think we should change our prayer to say, God, no matter what, I just want you. I just want to be closer to you. God, I want all that you have for me, even in this season of my life right now. You know, you think about all the prayers that we pray. If God were to answer all the prayers that you continue to pray, would it affect anybody else or just you? Now, please understand that he does care about everything about your life, all the details, like God cares. He wants to move in your life. So don't take it like that. But I think we need to not just be thinking about ourselves. We need to be praying prayers for other people. God, I want to make a difference in this life. Lord, I want to see you move in that family. God, use me to help encourage them, to bless them, help, to help me reach people, help me disciple people. God, I want to be a blessing to as many people as I possibly can. Make those your prayers too. Hmm. So I think maybe some of us need to change our prayers to just, God, I just want all that you have for me in this life. I want you. I want to be closer to you. And God, even though I'm going through this, God, I can thank you. I can praise you. I can trust you. No matter what. Like this, we sang a song a few moments ago, through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. And Melody, I listened to you sing that song. I'm telling you, I just about lost it because most people here have no idea what you've gone through in these last few years. They have no idea. And here you stood up here and you said, through it all, my eyes are on you, Jesus. And, And I'm seeing you live that, what you sang. That was not a performance at all. That's a cry of her heart. And I'm seeing God bless your children because through it all, your eyes are on him. And it's possible for you and I to say, it's well. It's well. It doesn't feel good, but it's well with my soul. It is so possible, guys. It's so possible for us to trust Jesus and look to him through all of this. And why is that? Why can we do that? Because of verse three. I love what David says here. Because your unfailing love is better than life itself. Did you catch that when we first read that? Your unfailing love is better than life itself. Come on, do you believe that? Do you believe his love is actually better than your life? Hmm. This word love or unfailing love, it's the word hesed in Hebrew. It's another one of those hard words to translate into English. It has to do a lot with love, but also faithfulness and goodness, mercy and kindness, all of that. I love what Daryl Bach, he's a Bible scholar, he said this. He said, Hesed is wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. All of that is wrapped up in hesed love, like his love. And so that's where the translators will mash different words together in English, like faithful love, loyal love. Some translations say loving kindness. I love that one, his loving kindness. The New Living says his unfailing love. That's what it is. 
And so David is saying, God's love, it is unfailing, and it is so big, it is so good, it's better than life itself. Now, here's David who had it all, guys. Like, he's had all the money he could ever want, fame, popularity. He's had all the wives he could ever want. Like, the dude had too many wives and concubines. He can fulfill his sexual longings. He can buy whatever he wants. And he says, the love of God is better than anything I've experienced in this life. That's what he's saying. I've experienced it all. And some of us, we just want to go out there. We want to experience it. But, but, but God's got something so much better. Amen. He's got something so much better for you. And I love that David says this. He doesn't say, God, your love is the best thing in life. He doesn't say that. He says, God, your love is actually better than life itself. It's not even the best thing in life. It's better than the best thing. (laughs) Even in my life, God, your love is better. You know, when you first get married and how you just love your spouse and they can do no wrong and everything about them is so cute and precious and adorbs. Like they, like all the little idiosyncrasies and nuances, you know, it's like, oh, I just love that about you, you know, like they're so different from me and I just love that. And then after a few years, you're like, they're so different from me. (laughs) Got all these crazy little nuances and you realize they're messed up. I married a sinner. They're a sinner. (laughs) They got issues and their family has issues (laughs) and their family has family issues and now I have issues, but I've always had issues too. So, you know, there's, we, all, we all do, right? <laughs> it's interesting, you know, and we just, we long to experience like this perfect love in life. What we long for is a divine love and human love is the closest thing we can get to divine love. And we all long for the, the perfect unfailing love that only God can give us. But human love is, if I don't know God and I'm not seeking him, then, then human love is the closest thing that I can go after in this life. But even now, people are so scared for commitment. They're scared to go all in. And so they've settled with just a lesser form of love. They've settled even for just promiscuity and not love because I don't want to fully commit and get hurt. We got this fear of being hurt. This is why we need God's unfailing love. Unfailing love. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He will be faithful to you even when you aren't faithful. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is the promise of scripture right here. God's love is unfailing. And here's the cool thing. Like, you know, you get to know your spouse and you realize, okay, you know, they're not perfect like I thought they were. You get to know anybody close in life and you realize they're not perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. Here's the great news about God. The more you get to know him, the better he is. The better he gets. That's a promise from scripture right here, okay? Hmm, his kindness is so incredible. His patience is, whoa. God, you're so patient with me. The more you get to know God, the better he is. His love isn't just the best thing in life. It's better than life itself. And so David said, that's why I praise you. That's why I praise you. That's the end of of verse 3. And then verse 4, he goes on to say, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with the songs of joy. So this last fall, Amy and I went on a little anniversary getaway. It was 20 years for us. 
And we didn't have a big, huge getaway. We went to LA and just had some fun at the beach and all that kind of stuff. And it was cool because for the first time in my entire married life, every anniversary celebration, I would go to restaurants and I would watch the baseball playoffs, never to watch the Mariners. And for the first time in my married life, I got to watch the Mariners over my anniversary. I don't know why I'm sharing this, but it was just a big deal. That was a fun part of our anniversary getaway. There's other better things than that, but <laughs> this one night we decided, let's go out to dinner. Like, let's go out to a nice restaurant. Like, let's not just do Chipotle. Like, I love, we love Chipotle. Come on, everyone, Chipotle, it's great. But let's like, let's go to a nice sit down, like really enjoy our meal restaurant tonight. And it took us a long time to find a place. I mean, driving around Hollywood, LA area, we finally found this place and we pulled up, there's like this line out the door, and Amy's like, I wanna go to that place. I'm like, I'm so hungry, it's like 6.30. I wanna eat dinner like an hour ago. We go, there's an hour wait, we decided to wait. So we put our name in and we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait. We finally, we sit down for this meal, and they bring the, the bread out, and I'm telling you guys, that first bite of that bread changed my life. And I looked at Amy and I said, I don't know if I've ever tasted better bread in my life than this. <laughs> Honest to God truth, guys. That bread was so good. We're like, keep it coming. Keep it coming. Our pasta came and we, every bite of our pasta was like, oh, how can this be so good? Literally, this was like my favorite meal, better than any Thanksgiving meal I've ever had in my life. And so we thought, let's, let's get dessert. We're not even hungry, but let's, let's order dessert because everything here is incredible. So we got dessert. It was so good. And we left that night. It was a late night, but just the setting of where we were at, this candlelit table and all this, just in outside downtown Hollywood, all that. It just was in the food. Man, we have talked about that meal 50 times since last October. Just last week, we were talking about how good that meal was. That's why I remembered it. That's why it came to my mind. We were talking about, remember that? Like, if we're ever in that area, we are going back to that restaurant. It was that good. You, get, you getting hungry? Here's the funny thing. I have no idea. I can find it on the map, which I will do. Oh, I will be committed, and I will hunt that place down. <laughs> Promise me. Then I'll let you know, okay? Yeah, okay. All right? <laughs> but here's what David said. David said, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. God has a greater satisfaction than anything we could ever experience in this life, better than the best meal you ever had. Maybe you've had meals like I just described, like you still think about it. And God satisfies us more than that. Amen. More than that. Are you satisfied in God right now? How satisfied are you in him? How much satisfaction are you finding in the Lord? Because guys, here's the deal. We have desires. We have longings. We're going after all these things because we're creatures of desire. But as we go after him, I... The, the promise from the Lord, from his word even, is that I have everything you need. 
I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. Such a smart guy, and he, it was one of my favorite quotes of him. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. How satisfied are you in him? Is he fulfilling your deepest longing and security of your life? Can I read that again? It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I pray that that wouldn't describe us. But if we're honest, many of us have maybe felt this, adopted this. I know I've been there at times in my life, but it seems like we've created this, this standard of comfortable Christianity within our church that we are okay with. We're, just, we're fine with it. It's okay. It's fine. As if comfort is the ultimate goal in life. And we've, we just want to be comfortable in our Christianity and then we're, we're good. And we're okay with that. But here's the deal. Comfortable Christianity won't change the world. You know that? Comfortable Christianity, it won't change your family. It won't even change you. I would liken it to a vaccine that gives you just enough dose of Christianity to inoculate you to the rest of it so you're not too passionate, too crazy about it. It's like, I got a little taste, eh. You know what a vaccine does? It gives you a little bit of the, the disease and then your body can fight it off, right? That's what a vaccine is supposed to do. And so they give you a little bit of it, your body builds an immunity to it, and then you're good. You'll never really fully receive that. And I think that comfortable Christianity does that to the church. Gives us just a little bit, but then it really inoculates us to everything that God has for us. Uh, comfortable Christianity is gonna raise complacent children who are gonna wander away from the Lord. Comfortable Christianity is how I would describe way too many, not all, but way too many Christian schools. Where they just, we put our kids in these Christian schools and they just, they're safe, they're in this bubble, but it gives them just enough Christian to inoculate them to have a full-blown passionate love for Jesus. And I think we should not be okay with a comfortable Christianity. I think we should declare war on comfortable Christianity. And complacency. Man, I wish I had grabbed that picture, that sign that the Viet made for me of the square piece of carpet that used to be here where there was a hole in the carpet where we, I threw a chair and it ripped up the carpet. But the, care, the, the chair was basically this like, hey, let's declare war on complacency. And I should have thought of that before this. But man, let's not be okay with comfortable Christianity. What if we normalized a passionate pursuit of Jesus? What if we normalized it?
So let's look at verse five again. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. (laughs) Here's the deal, guys. You don't need to do more. You don't need to be better. You don't need to sin less. You don't need to try harder. You just need to find satisfaction in him. Just enjoy him. Look at that. Tony, you got it right there. Here it is right here. You knew where it was. Come on, this is it right here. Thanks to Viet, we have it memorialized. We see a church full of passionate followers of Jesus who declare war on compromise and complacency. That's what it says. I love it. We'll put that right here. I'm so glad we don't have that carpet anymore, too. (laughs) I love what George Mueller said. He's this mighty man of God. He ran a bunch of orphanages, did so many good things for people and for communities. And, And he said this. He says, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That's what we just want to do. That's what we need to do. Just be happy in the Lord right now. Let's enjoy the Lord. Find satisfaction in Him. That's the goal. And so what we want to do is we want to cultivate a hunger for that. So we got to maybe change some rhythms, some habits, so that we really can live a Jesus-centered life, so that Jesus is the center of all that we do. Remember Acts chapter 2? These people went all in for Jesus, and Jesus was at the center of their daily life. And that's what we want, is that Jesus would be at the center of our life. Just have a hunger for him. And maybe we might opt to just spend some more time in the evenings, just like, I just, I just want to worship and pray. We've got a Tuesday night prayer meeting. Every Tuesday, we invite you to come. Like, you don't have to come to just the things we schedule, though. You can do your own with other people. You, you can go and schedule. Like, we can get together and worship whoever, wherever, with whoever. But Tuesday, it's always available. A couple came last Tuesday, and they're like, man, it just felt so good. I want to keep going. I want to be there more and more. There's something about coming together with God's people and just seeking him. It just cultivates and stirs up a greater hunger. And that's the key to seeing God move, isn't it? That's the key. It's a continual hunger. So would you stand your feet right now? Thanks again for listening to this message at Rivers Church. We'd love to have you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. To learn more about what's going on in the life of our church community, check us out at riverschurch.co. I pray that this week you would walk in the power and the presence of God. Thanks for joining us.